Good morning. And welcome to this morning's theme talk. My name, for those of you who don't know, is Kate McKenna, and I'm from the Octagon Chapel in Norwich. Can you all hear me? Was that a no? <laughs> We're going to start light with lighting our chalice candle, which Lauren's going to do for us. Thank you, Lauren. absolutely do not need in this sunny, well-lit room stands for so much more that we do need. It stands for togetherness and community and love and shared hope and our own inner lights. We light it this morning as a focus, as a focus on our physical beings here today, our bodily selves without which none of our spiritual and emotional selves could function. We light it for our strains and our stresses, and for our awareness of the specialness that is summer school, for our knowledge that here, in this bubble, right now, in this moment, all is well. Amen. We're going to sing now. We're going to sing hymn number... Someone's going to have to help me out here, Sheila. Hymn number... 139. Thank you. Sacred the Body. And Sheila's going to play it through for us once first. Sorry? The whole thing.
morning is unspoken. When I chime the bell, please stand. And when I chime it again, I invite you each to take six deep, prayerful breaths, consciously aware of the holiness of that act and of the miracle of being present in your body here and now. And then please sit when you're ready. In Norwich we have dozens of children and therefore I never have to remember the first four words of any story. So I'm hoping you lot can help me out with the first four words of how all the best stories should start. Once upon a time, thank you. And the other really cool 
end on duck-like thing about the ducklings' parents was that they were not only enlightened, they were literary. It's a story. <laughs> and every night they read to the duckling. And the duckling's favourite ever story was that great work of Danish fiction, The Ugly Duckling. It's hardly surprising the duckling liked that story. Such a beautiful tale of redemption and everything turning out all right in the end and beauty prevailing. The duckling asked for it night after night after night and fell asleep feeling a bit better about how it looked. After all, one day things might change and the duckling might be magnificent. But then one day the duckling left the shelter of home and came across a horde of other ducklings. And the other ducklings weren't quite so enlightened. Actually, they were horrible. They took one look at the duckling with the belly and the toes and the, the knees and the whatever, and laughed and laughed and laughed. You're not even a duckling, they cackled. You're a freak. I bet your parents are ashamed of you, really. Thank you. You won't be a bit surprised to know that the duckling was dreadfully upset. So it ran away and hid in some reed beds for a while and eventually fell asleep. And then woke up again. And during the night, while it was asleep, the duckling had remembered the story of the ugly duckling. And that was quite encouraging. Now I've woken up, went the duckling's train of thought. I'm going to discover that looking like I do is actually because I'm something other than I thought I was. Just as soon as I can find a piece of water still enough, I'm going to look in it and see, well, instead of the old me, instead of the, the knees and the bellies and the bum and whatever it was we all just mentioned, I'm going to find that I look like... OK, harder question. Tell me the bit of your body that you love the most. Breasts. Eyes, breasts, wrists. <laughs> You're all very much quieter on that front. Come on, you can do it. <laughs> okay, so the duckling thought, I'm going to look like that. All the best parts of the bodies of the Unitarian summer school participants are going to meld into one glorious whole, and that's what I'm going to see. That was one excited duckling. So he waddled around a bit, strutting, because any moment now there was going to be a vision of such elegant beauty, look at you, that the whole world would look on in wonder. And there was the still patch of water, perfect reflective pool. And the duckling approached, perched on the edge of it, and then looked in and saw... Big belly, big bum, legs too short, big feet, wobbly ears. <laughs> it's fiction. <laughs> and it was a bit of a shock, to be honest. So the duckling decided to head off home. It was a fair old way. He'd been in quite a sulk the day before. But eventually, there was home. There were the liberal parents. And we are very, very close to the happy ending now, but we have one more hurdle. 
and the duckling waddled as fast as possible up to the little parents and flung itself into their arms. <laughs> Liberal parents, it cried, I am so glad to be home. It can talk, it's fiction, we've established this. But please tell me this, do you love me? Even though I've got a belly and a bum and really weird eyes and big feet and all of that, do you still love me despite all of that? And both parents together said, no. I know. But before the duckling could start crying and wandering off again, the parents carried on, we love you because you're you. And being you involves legs that are too short and a big bum and big ears and and all of that. So we love you because of all that, not despite all that. And the duckling sighed happily. And guess what? They really did all live happily ever after. Now's your chance to go if you're going. view. 
We can't get away from the fact that as Unitarians, we have a very cerebral sort of religion. Demographically, we're middle class and we're educated. We do thinking, we do logic, we do reason. So at the same time as we're treating our bodies like gods, we have this parallel and opposite view that our physical body, all this, is mainly really only here to carry around our, I'm going to say souls, but certainly our real selves, our personalities, our brains, our thoughts, our feelings, and our emotions and our relationships. And certainly, I have that view. I love physical comfort as much as most other people. I hate tummy aches, I don't like going to the dentist, and I will not wear uncomfortable shoes. But I very definitely worked on the basis that what really counted, all that really counted, was what goes on up here and in here. And then my father died. I've never been there when a life has begun, but being present in the days before and the moments after my father went from being someone who was alive to someone who was no longer alive was remarkable, beautiful, holy, and transformative. I was very spoiled. My father's death was entirely untraumatic. He was 80, he was tired, he was a part of the decision to stop the treatment, he was with his family, he could not have had better nursing care, we had time to say the things you want to say, and he was drunk on Glenfiddich. <laughs> I, I will not hear a word against the NHS. There was, especially in the last few hours, hours during which we were in awe of both the impulse and the ability to communicate when all recognised means of communication are gone. There was an almost palpable thinning of the veil between the world in which people live and have breath and are warm and the world in which people no longer do. It was a holy and a beautiful time and a huge privilege to be an active part of something so elemental. And after his death, it was, as it always is, time to dispose of the body. Now, remember, I come from a place where that was all we would be doing, just a practical task. What was important was the person's self and the love and the memories. A burial was just a practical issue. It's just the shell. It's just where that person lived. But that's just not true, is it? Because my father was a Quaker and having a Quaker funeral, and because even with all our affection and respect for that tradition, none of us could quite bear the thought of a silent burial, and because I rather like the sound of my own voice, we decided that I would lead the committal part of the proceedings. And when I was writing what I was going to say, it became clearer and clearer to me how wrong I'd been about it being just the body. Quoting from your own writing is probably terribly poor form, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> this is some of what we said as we buried my father's body. We are here to bury the body of Brian. And in doing that, we're participating in something eternal, sacred, painful, and elemental. We're here now to return to the ground, the physical body 
that carried round what really made him, him. And it's a task which deserves to be carried out with the utmost reverence, love and respect. We may only be burying a body, but it's the body that made the person real to us. It's the physical body that made him able to interact with us. It was the body which took him to wherever it was you met him. And it was the body which smiled and laughed and consoled and sang. And what we're about to do now is the beginning of the process by which his physical self is absorbed back into the world. Our bodies, our physical selves, are very, very important to us. It seems so obvious as to be barely worth saying, but I think we should sometimes be consciously pulling our attentions back towards that fact. Our bodies are important. I'm not talking about becoming obsessive dieters or exercisers or necessarily filled with a sense of awe at our own physical grandeur. Although those of us who watched the Olympics, which I assume was everybody even if we said we weren't going to, <laughs> we will have been astounded and moved and amazed by the sheer possibilities of the human body and what it can do. All I mean is that however we go about it, we should be becoming more aware that our bodies are far more than just where we live. They're how we live. And our bodies and our souls, pick your word for that, I'm going with souls. Our bodies and our souls are inextricably linked. We certainly know at a very deep level that our bodies and our emotions are linked. And it's hardly a step away at all to realise that our bodies and our souls are also linked. Show me where your knees are. Well done. Show me where your nose is. Pretty much 100%. Show me where your ears are. Show me where your thoughts are. Show me where your love comes from. Okay. Most of you did not hesitate any more in showing me where your thoughts or your love lives than you did in showing me where your knees or your nose are. And yet your knees and your nose are just, they're just there. They're tangible bits of you. Within reason and allowing for growth, not of the nose, of the, of the <laughs> You've all got lovely noses. Within reason, they stay in the same relative position to the rest of you, your whole life. <laughs> but love and thoughts, we, we all know that love does not happen here, which is where most of us touched when I asked you to show me where the love was. It just feels like it does, even though we know it doesn't. And yet, when I asked you where the love comes from, almost all of you did this. And while it's true that it doesn't really live there, I'm sure most of us will know that the phrase heartbreak is not just a poetic analogy. We feel grief. We also feel anger and jealousy and excitement and fear. 
we feel them very physically. Your body and your emotions and your soul are not three separate entities. They're a beautifully tangled mess. Three things which are really only one thing. I think that could start a religious movement. <laughs> not, not this one. <laughs> Religions. <laughs> that was slow, but thank you. <laughs> have for centuries maybe forever known this physicality is huge in many of the major stories in the Judeo-Christian Bible the story of Jesus and I'm focusing on Christianity here only because it's what I know best starts with that most basic and earthy and messy and bodily of all things a human birth Admittedly, a birth, we're told, was not the result of a basic and earthy and messy and bodily act of sex. But still, there's nothing to indicate we're not meant to take the birth itself as being anything other than perfectly human. And then, the story of Jesus ends with a situation so bloody and agonizing and visceral and obscene that we should barely be able to contemplate it without our hearts breaking. No matter what one believes did or didn't happen after that, no matter even what one believes about the historical person of Jesus, if we can look, really look, at a death by crucifixion and not have our hearts broken by it, then I would suggest we're not looking closely enough. And looking closely enough is exactly what good religious art demands of us. With our cool and logical and rational Unitarian heads on, we tend to shudder at some of the more graphic examples of this. I'm sure we've all seen the sorts of things I'm talking about, from medieval crucifixion scenes to the face of Christ in the Mel Gibson film a few years ago. Images literally bloody showing a man in the absolute extremes of physical agony. And we certainly tend to recoil at some of the expressions of devotion this art provokes. I remember being 13, staying with friends in Andalusia in Holy Week, and visiting a church with them while they queued to kiss the wounds on the feet of a statue of Christ on the cross. I was a 13-year-old Quaker from Norwich. <laughs> it was almost entirely outside of anything I had known. But with no understanding of it whatsoever, I still found it incredibly moving and knew that there was something very special going on. I didn't know what. And at the same time, I felt a bit sick. I can't even remember what the language was that we'd have used back then over 30 years ago, but it was something along the lines of, you gross. Yeah. And it is gross. It's meant to be gross. That is the point. If you're the sort of Christian who believes that Jesus went through that deliberately for your sake and died for your redemption you jolly well should engage fully with that agony and those wounds so that you know just exactly what it is you owe him. 
But what about the rest of us? Most of us, I think, don't believe that Jesus died for our sins and that through that death we were redeemed. But those images, that narrative, still has everything to say to us that could possibly be said to us about the body and about love and about humanity. It's been said that we can, even us, be saved by the concept of the crucified Christ. If we allow our hearts to break, as I suggested earlier we maybe should, the crack it makes is where compassion gets in. The cracks are where the light gets in. People can suffer like that still. People do suffer like that still. And our only response can be heartbreak and compassion. And if it takes a lurid painting of a hideous historical event to make that happen, then so be it. Your body, however conflicted you might feel about it, and we all feel conflicted about our bodies, is a precious, precious thing. It is a holy thing. It is the thing which lets you be here. And it is full of such treats and delights and sensuous pleasures. And yet, we don't always feel we can acknowledge those. I guess that's years of puritanical strictures weighing down on us. But we tend to feel almost guilty about sensuous joy. I'm not even talking about sex here yet. Just the sheer joy of physical sensation. You all know, I hope, that feeling when you're in just the right position in bed, when your limbs have managed to arrange themselves just so, and you're consciously, actively comfortable. Yeah? Good. It's bliss. And too often you sort of feel it shouldn't be. I shouldn't be this comfortable. And you're wrong. It should be. We're fortunate to live in a time and place where we're allowed the luxury of physically pampering ourselves, whether we recognise that's what we're doing or not. And while that is undoubtedly a function of a world in which things aren't fair, it's not fair that we can arrange our pillows to the exact configuration we want, while millions of people can barely dream of more than a blanket to sleep on or under. But the fact is, we can and we shouldn't feel guilty about doing so. Your body, all of you, your body is a phenomenon. Whether you've treated it as a temple all your life, or frankly not treated it as compassionately as you might, whether you've always known rude good health or experienced physical illness and debilitation, your body is a holy, holy thing. Whatever your relationship with your body, just ponder for a moment the things it lets you do. It lets you be here. Your mind might be the most brilliantly agile thing in the history of human thought. You may have the purest soul ever sent down from wherever souls get sent down from. And you may have the sunniest personality bringing joy to millions just by existing. But without a physicality of some sort, you wouldn't be able to express that. And I say, of some sort, advisedly. We live in the age of the internet. Vast amounts of our communication is done electronically. 
We can have very close friends we will never physically meet and whose voices we will never actually hear. Internet cynics will have to trust me on that one. And I guess you could argue that there is no physicality in those relationships. But still, for that pure, verbal, mind-to-mind conversation, someone somehow needs to be able to get words onto a screen, and someone somehow has to be able to read them or hear them. One of the sayings that annoys me the most is, as long as you've got your health. As if without it, as if without good health, there's no point in being. But we all know someone, maybe we actually are someone, with very limited health, very limited mobility, or very limited ability to communicate, who still makes a vast contribution and has an active and extremely valid life. It's an easy and obvious example, but I don't need to go any further than mentioning Stephen Hawking to make that point. Physicality counts for an awful lot, and us brainy Unitarian types can tend to forget that. So now I'm going to give you a chance to move around a little bit. Don't panic. Panic later. You're going to get a chance to move around a lot later. But for now, stay calm. And to engage with your own physical self and each other's physical selves. I'm going to invite you to feel this physicality by simply touching your palm against another palm. Either your own or the palm of somebody next to you, or beside you, or around you, or more than one person. This is your only chance to stretch for a while, so if you want to use this as an excuse to touch palms with somebody on the other side of the room, please feel free. When the music begins, just place both palms together or on somebody else's palms. That's the advanced option, the somebody else is the advanced option. And Sheila's going to play one verse of our opening hymn together while we just consciously become aware of that feel of heat and the pulse and the togetherness of each other. There is a very advanced level and that involves eye contact. (laughs) And if we do this in quietness... somebody who might become troublesome, give them a job. Jeff. So no. <laughs> <laughs> Can I 
most of you see that? Can people see that? Yeah. Give them a job they can manage. <laughs> Glamorous assistant. That was, that was very well done. <laughs> Can anybody tell me what that is? <laughs> Sorry? Yeah, oh. oh. <laughs> Sarah knows her ecstasy. It is a print of a detail of the Benini sculpture. This makes me sound so clever. <laughs> Benini sculpture, the, the ecstasy of St. Teresa. I cannot believe you didn't all know that. <laughs> it was finished in Rome in 1652. And as a genuine aside, 1652 is the year in which George Fox founded the Religious Society of Friends. And we think it's just now that we have extremes of religious differences. So, the ecstasy of St. Teresa. So Teresa of Avila is one of my favourite saints, and this is one of my favourite sculptures. Like, I've got millions of favourite sculptures. <laughs> <laughs> this, this sculpture depicts St. Teresa at the moment she describes thus in her autobiography. Very close to me, an angel appeared in human form. In his hands, I saw a large golden sphere. And at its golden tip, there seemed to be a point of fire. I felt as if he plunged this into my heart several times, so that it penetrated all the way to my entrails. When he drew it out, he seemed to draw them out with it, and it left me totally inflamed with a great love for God. The pain was so severe that it made me moan several times. Now, to a modern, secular way of looking at things, that sort of expression on a face, and, and to Carl, clearly. <laughs> that sort of expression on a face and those words would mean something very, very different. Chocolate. Sorry? Chocolate. Chocolate. <laughs> We'll go with chocolate, Jim, and we'll have a chat later. Here's what Simon Sharma says about it. She's in ecstasy, all right. Her head is thrown back, her mouth open. Her heavy-lidded eyes are half-closed. You have to look. You don't know where to look. Because Bernini has managed to make visible, tangible, actually, something we all if we're honest, know we hunger for, but before which we're properly tongue-tied, something which has produced more bad writing, more excruciating poems than anything else you can think of. No wonder when art historians look at this, they tie themselves in knots to avoid saying the obvious, that we're looking at the most intense, convulsive drama of the body that any of us experience between birth and death. And that was Simon Sharma. There has always been this correlation between the base and earthly and bodily and the divine. 
It's easy and it's cheap and yeah, actually it's quite funny to pass Teresa's ecstasy off as a virgin woman's nearest best equivalent to sexual bliss, to orgasm. I promised some of you I was going to say that word. <laughs> she's a nun. She's pure. She's untouched. She's almost certainly never had sex. And with our modern world obsession with all things sexual, we can't really imagine that. Even those of us who don't define as sexual ourselves live in a world where that's all around us. So we try and put what's happening to Teresa into terms we can understand and grasp. And in our heads, we make that what she wants. Poor thing, we think. All she can get to get near that is this. And indeed, Sharma quotes a visitor to the sculpture saying, well, if that's divine love, I know all about it. So are we, in fact, implying to ourselves that holy rapture, that a deep connection with the divine is a cheap substitute for sexual satisfaction? I mean, really. I suspect Teresa and many other saints and mystics and transcendent holy people would have something to say to us about that. And I think it's far more likely that what we're doing, what perhaps we spend our lives doing, is finding ways in which we can begin to come vaguely close to starting to just about maybe sort of come near to understanding that sort of bliss. Mystics and holy people and seers and prophets have always used physicality to bring them closer to the divine. And we still do. Maybe not Unitarian so much, but religious sorts generally. At its most basic and simple, think how Western children are taught to sit when they pray. Hands together, fingers on nose, eyes closed, head down. We do this quite often in my house, and it's called prayer face, and we're both middle-aged. <laughs> There's actually nothing wrong with that position. Placing your hands together can be a very holy thing. Um, some of you may have experienced that earlier. Members of lots of denominations routinely kneel to pray, and there's a sort of sliding scale of piousness. Level one, remain in the pew. Level two, hassock. Level three, kneeling on the stone floor. The connection between physical discomfort, physical change, and holiness, or being in closer touch with the divine, goes back a very long way. If we move beyond the postures in which people pray, which is, after all, pretty mainstream, and even as Unitarians, we tend to shift when somebody says, let us pray, we soon get to things which might start making us raise our eyebrows a bit. We're probably fairly comfortable with the idea of fasting. We're just past Ramadan, when Muslims fasted from sunup to sundown every day, unless they were very young, pregnant, infirm, elderly, or, and I love this combination of faith and pragmatism, competing in the Olympics. <laughs> seven times a year. Christians have Lent. Cutting back on the intake of food and drink for religious purposes isn't at all uncommon. We do the opposite at summer school, I grant you, but it's not uncommon. <laughs> and there are several reasons for it. 
and lots of benefits from it. The physical benefits are probably fairly straightforward and some of us may need to do that next week. The spiritual ones may be a little less so. But what's one of the first symptoms of mild hunger, even before your tummy starts to complain? Gurgling. That's your tummy complaining. (laughs) Tiredness. And and we get lightheaded. People get lightheaded. Normally, at that point, you eat something. But if you don't, you get more and more lightheaded. And it's not actually that long between the bound, before the boundaries between real and not real get a little blurred. Hunger can make you hallucinate. I am not saying that hallucinations and religious visions are always the same. But let's not pretend that there aren't times when the boundaries are very vague. Many of the visions experienced by some of our favourite visionaries may well have been helped along by an altered mental state. And the simplest and most common altered physical state was quite likely one caused, deliberately or not, by starvation. At various times throughout history, extreme fasting has been recommended as a route to communication with the divine. Whilst some people, and it was mainly women, did actually starve themselves to death, many others starved themselves as nearly to that point as they could, with the aim, it seems, of getting close to the divine, emptying themselves of the self, and being open to insights from God. Very clearly, altering your mental state by altering your physical state works. And there were other ways in which many of those medieval religious men and women did things. Hair shirts were not uncommon. It's a phrase we use quite often when we're getting over apologetic, oh, excuse me while I go and get my hair shirt. But actually, wearing a shirt made of goat hair all day, every day, very unpleasant. But if you thought that was what God wanted, or if you thought that was what would get you closer to God, well, of course you would. A constant reminder of your bodily mortification. What could God possibly want more? But the point is, whatever your feelings on the matter, whatever our feelings on the matter, people wore those things because it made them feel holier. And of course, the biggie, self-flagellation. There was a huge fondness for this particular form of bodily mortification. And again, the reasons for and benefits of the practice are manifold. You can still buy small whips made by nuns and monks in Italy. There is a way in which this kind of activity, however modern and rational and cynical we may be about it, can enhance openness to spiritual insights. I know that some of you are very keen on exercise. Yeah? Looking at you, Sue. (laughs) And those of you who are will get the concept of an endorphin rush. Yeah? Okay. Again, and this is my third and final Olympics reference, it's something we saw a lot of during the Games. It's that rush of chemicals through the body and, crucially, the brain, which lets you get past the barrier. I think you sporty types call it the wall. Is that right? The wall. That's as near I get to sporty, is using that sporty phrase. It's that wall of exhaustion and pain, and it allows you not to only carry on from where you were, but to actually do more and go further. 
And exercise is one way of achieving that. And physical pain, with or without the exercise, is another. And there are many people entirely outside of the film, the field of self-doubt and self-abasement and issues of guilt and heavenly rewards. Many, many people who use the giving and receiving of pain, sometimes in a sexualized and erotic setting and sometimes not, as a spiritual practice. And I know that I'm far from alone in the Unitarian movement in knowing that firsthand and in welcoming the fact that the discussion on the matter has been opened up. Sexualities which benefit people and which are expressed safely and sanely and consensually between adults who know what they are doing and why and who are clear on where the boundaries lie are really not up for anyone else to judge. And spiritual practices which enhance people's closeness to God or the divine or call it what you will are surely something which we should be celebrating as Unitarians, not judging and decrying. I'm aware that the song we started with contained the words, love does not batter, neglect or abuse. Love touches gently, never coercing. Love leaves the other with power to choose. And I know that to some of you, that will be at odds with what I've just said. But we need to be really, really clear that we're talking about consensual, mutually beneficial, spiritually enhancing relationships here, ones that fit in entirely with respect for the sacredness of the body. And if those two practices, the spiritual and the erotic, are combined, we as a movement should just be glad for those benefiting from it. If I'm right that a lot of our spiritual practices are a way of trying to get close to that experience up there, that ecstasy, then we should be celebrating it, mindful of our love of reason and tolerance. And summer school panel, you can relax now. I'm done. <laughs> but there are some other worship practices which can all too often raise disapproving eyebrows in our congregations. Clapping. Raising hands in prayer, dancing, calling out, hand-holding, feet-tapping, nodding, head-shaking, generally responding in any physical way to what's being said or done. <laughs> Most of you will have heard this story, but that's okay. There was a woman from another kind of church who visited her first Unitarian service, and she found the sermon very much to her liking, and one particular point really spoke to her, and she flung her arms up and shouted out, Amen! And one of the regulars came rushing up to her, all flustered, and said, Madam, are you ill? <laughs> and the woman beamed at him and hugged him and said, I got religion, I got the spirit. And he blanched and said, My God, Madam, not in here, please. <laughs> it is a funny story, and I like funny. But isn't it also a little bit true? I sometimes go to other churches, I know. It doesn't mean anything. They just give me something I can't get from Unitarianisms. And at Unitarianisms, there are many. And I often find myself envying their physicality. I'm not even talking about charismatic congregations dancing in the aisles here. I'm talking about the more relaxed wing of the Church of England, raising their arms when they pray or sing. It's like the absolute opposite of self-abasement. It's glorious and it's loving and it's sacred and I have never been able to let myself do it. I know that's my own problem. 
I particularly find myself wanting to do it when we sing, Spirit of Life, come to me, come to me. But I find that I actually sit there and my body is saying, Spirit of Life, come and have a go if you think you're hard. (laughs) (laughs) But our bodies and what we can do with them... Again, 
We're going to sing number 88 in the purple book, which just happens to be called Let It Be a Dance. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and Come on I'm Friday afternoon. <laughs> it's not a plug session, Dawn. <laughs> I'm going to invite you, if you wish, to take the song a little more literally than you might otherwise. We need some people who will not do that, because if you're dancing, you can't read the words. So if you, if you just want to sit and sing, that's actually good. Use the space. There's space here, there's space there. You can make a circle round the chairs if you wish. If you're planning on dancing, read through the words. Don't take your hymn book with you. There are, are there four verses, Sheila? Right. Okay. So if you feel like dancing, please dance as if no one is watching and as if you are acknowledging the greatest gift you have been given, which you are. If you feel like just sitting, maybe tap your feet a bit. <laughs> okay. So it is number, I haven't written that down. <laughs> number 88 in the purple book. Take a second to it if you're not going to be carrying your book with you and, and then you'll know what you're dancing about even if you don't know all the words. Indeed, let it be a dance.
I'm completely out of breath. You'll have to guess what I'm saying. <laughs> and now we've been uninhibited enough to dance and touch each other's palms and all that weird, radical stuff. <laughs> Let's hold hands with whoever we're in reach of, ready for our closing words, which I've borrowed from Erica A. Hewitt. The hand in yours belongs to a person whose heart is sometimes tender, whose skin is sometimes thin, whose eyes sometimes fill with tears, whose laughter is a beautiful sound. The hand that you hold belongs to a person who is seeking wholeness and knows that you are doing the same. As you leave this place, May your hearts remain open. May your voices stay strong. And may your hands remain outstretched. <laughs>